If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9. Um, sort of Bible famous, uh, if, and you'll see why when we get to at least one verse within Zechariah 9. But <clears throat> while y'all are opening up uh, there, I, um, and I don't want to just diagnose you, but we'll tell you, uh, uh, we have a pride problem. We have a pride problem. Uh, not Centennial alone. <laughs> Humanity. And this word today, and this word from Zechariah 9 in its totality, uh, gives us relief from the problem. Uh, I had the great pleasure to sit under the teaching of uh, one of our Sunday school teachers this morning, uh, Stephen Roddy. Uh, he has been teaching the uh, Carpi alongside of uh, one of our other uh, elders, uh, Henry Jarman. And, and this morning we were talking about atheism. And uh, we were talking about prod, uh, atheism, uh, that is a belief uh, that there is no God. Uh, we were talking about uh, the general movement of one who would be in such a category. Uh, these were the two words that uh, Stephen Roddy used coming out of the curriculum. Self-reliant, self-governing. It's the desire of an atheist. And as I sat there, uh, feeling the full weight of those words on my own heart, I thought it most fitting to be the introduction this morning. Self-reliant and self-governing. Man, you know, when I wake up in the morning, uh, I have the great privilege to serve y'all. It's a minister, right? That's centennial. And I so desperately want to be the answer to y'all's problems. I, I can't remember if it was last Sunday or the Sunday before, but I said, you know, if, if I get the knock on my door, I think, uh-oh. Something's wrong, right? You know, there's a problem. And, and, and if there's a problem, I so desperately want to solve it. If you're sad, I want to take it away. If you're mad, I want to take it away. If you're too happy, I want to level you out. I want to be there to help. And I can't. Self-governing. Oh, if I just fix A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, element of P, and all the others of our church, of our denomination, or whatever, I'll fix it. But I can't. Self-reliant. Self-governing. Man, that is so hard. And the problem is, is that for humanity... Not just us, but we are part of humanity. Even if we believe in the Lord Jesus, we are still a part of humanity. We take up the mantle of pride so easily and veil our eyes. And before we know it, we are grasping into things that we cannot do. And then we wonder why we're so dead dog tired at the end of the day. Self-reliant. Self-governing. Our main point this morning is that God is the all-powerful king of creation. And because of that, there is great comfort for his people. Let me pray. And we're going to read God's word today. I pray a balm, not only for my soul, but for all of us here. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. And God, thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, of the sin of pride, for we all bear it in some form or another. 
And yet, God, in the same breath, thank you for the comfort of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see in every verse of your word to us. And that sweet balm for the soul to bring us from a place of destruction into a beautiful place of salvation and deliverance. God, would you bless us this morning from your word, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. This is Zechariah chapter 9, we'll start with verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea. And she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar." On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The grass withers and the flowers fade, 
But the word of the Lord, it remains forever. And this is a good word from the Lord. I know that perhaps as you were hearing it, you're thinking, where are we going this morning? But as we have seen, with just a little bit of movement through, we will come out on the other side, I pray, <coughs> excuse me, with a deeper understanding of the reality that God is the all-powerful king of creation who comforts his people. Three points this morning to help us get there. Uh, and this is speaking of God as king. Ruling, defending, and conquering. Let's take up our first point now. <clears throat> first then, let's look at God as all-powerful king of creation ruling the world. And we see that <coughs> excuse me, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9. Regarding our two most recent presidents, uh, one thing that I've heard is an ownership dilemma. You'll get what I mean in just a second. When President Trump was in office, certain individual, uh, individuals would say, well, he's not my president. Right? Are y'all familiar with this? It can't just be me, right? Likewise, now that President Biden is in office, certain other individuals, uh, they might say something like, well, he's not my president. I've heard it from both sides in the past couple years. But here's the point. Regardless of what any individual says, President Trump was the president from January 2017 to January 2021. And likewise, President Biden is the president from January 2021 up until now. The same thing happens to God. Well, he's not my God. I hear it a lot more than maybe y'all do. Well, he's, that's not my God. That's the all-call of the world. But that doesn't speak a new reality into existence. God is the all-powerful king of creation. And humanity is a part of that creation. And this is what's happening in these judgment oracles against the nations. They are all saying in their own way, well, he's not my God. And God is reminding the nations that's not how it works. If you wanted a summary of these eight verses, verse one is the thing for you. And that second part especially. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. In other words, I got my eye on everybody. Okay, is what, is what the Lord is revealing. Now, of course, as we approach verses one through eight, it would be most excellent if y'all knew where Hamath and Tyre and Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and so on were located. But that's not necessarily the point. If you don't know where those places are in the world, uh, that's not where God is going to say, get out. Okay? That's not necessarily the point. Some of my history buffs, they might even be seeking to place this in time, or maybe y'all know, right, that if you work through these judgments and these oracles, and maybe when they came to pass, you might see, generally speaking, that this came in the time of Alexander the Great's conquest across the known world. Uh, for instance, Tyre and Sidon, when it speaks of the sea and how everything is crushed, Boom! 
all of a sudden, all of their ships are gone. Their whole strongholds are demolished. And Alexander the Great salts the earth that nothing might grow in that place again because of their defiance. So you might find, for instance, if you're a history buff or you love to know kind of when these pieces and points came to be, that, that Alexander the Great was a tool in God's hand. And we see that elsewhere in the Word, for instance, in Daniel. But, but even that is not necessarily the point of this Word right here. Regardless of Tyre and Sidon's wisdom, verse 2, of its strength and riches... Verse 3, God will rule over them and mete out the justice they deserve for not acknowledging his sovereignty. Verse 4, this plays out then if we follow in the remaining verses of the text. The other countries, whether it's power or pride or sinful practices, they are all washed away before God the King's power and might. In other words, his ultimate rule. God is the all-powerful king of creation. And he is still, right now, the all-powerful king of creation. And this brings comfort to us, his people. Uh, depending on the day, and depending on what's on the news, I might speak with one of y'all. Maybe that was Knox, right? And it could be something bad. Maybe it's something good. Say, have you seen the news? You know, X, Y, Z is saying this. Or, or this kind of very either satanic or unbelieving or highly immoral or unrighteous movement seems to be taking a hold of, of the nation or of South Carolina or of Columbia or X, Y, Z. You say, What's happening to our country? My grandfather-in-law, he has since passed away some years ago, was a strong advocate for, uh, for a holding fast to the righteousness of God within our country. felt that, along with many other uh, knowledgeable statesmen, that without a biblical ethic, the country would cave in on itself, which... I actually would hold to a similar view. And you can see that in certain parts where things have become so stressed because we're moving away from a biblical ethic, a reality of moving within what God would have for any society, not just America's. But we dare not lament without recognizing that God is the true sovereign king over his creation and that his rule even comes even in the darkness of America, let alone the light, where we see great triumphs and victory. Uh, we must remember that there is great comfort because of God's rule and his strong hand of righteousness in the world. Secondly, we see that God is the all-powerful king of creation in the defense of his people. Verses 9 through 13. Uh, verse 9 being, remember, that famous verse, right? If you're familiar with Jesus' fulfillment. It, it's one thing to exhibit your power through ruling. And it's another to defend those you are ruling over. Any kingdom that gets too big has trouble with enemies on the outposts. Uh, Rome, for instance, if you read any history, you know that as Rome grew and grew and grew, things got consolidated on the inside and there was neglect on the outside and who came? Whew, 
those barbarians, right? Sacked Rome. Even in a barbaric nature. The kingdom had gotten too big, right? But God's kingly defense of his people and his creation, it's otherworldly because he is God. Verse 9, as I mentioned, is that well-known Bible verse because the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled it. He came into Jerusalem on that donkey. But there's more spiritual depth that goes beyond a mere donkey ride in verse 9. There is true spiritual defense here. This is verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Jesus was coming in humility uh, with salvation and righteousness in his hands. We see that from the word. Here's a couple other observations, though, that are very important for us as we really grasp a deeper reality of verse 9. His defense, that is Jesus' defense, that's taking place as he's entering Jerusalem. Because remember, that's what he's doing. That's what Jesus is doing, is coming, uh, not only to bring his people to himself, but to defend them for all time, to keep them. His defense did not require the numbers of an army. He only had 12 men. One of them was going to betray him, and the other 11 couldn't even fight in the battle with him. They could only follow and observe. They were known as the witnesses. Remember in Acts when Judas had betrayed Jesus and he is now gone. What was the requirement to become the, uh, the twelfth apostle? Did he witness all of the works of Jesus from the beginning? Not did he participate in. Not did he do this, this, and that. Not did he preach. Not did he have those qualifications. Was he there? Did he see it? This is Jesus' battle. The disciples were witnesses. His defense did not require not only the numbers, but the power of an army. He came on a donkey rather than a stallion. And by the way, uh, it, a donkey is not necessarily a humiliating uh, animal as we might think of it like, oh, war horse means really honorable, donkey means like really humiliating. The, the reality is that a king coming not on a war horse, but on a donkey or on something like that implies he's not coming to kill you. He's not coming uh, uh, mounted up with heavy war gear, needing a stallion to keep him and his gear from falling over. And so there, there was a peace march, as it were, as he's coming in to do this battle that was not physical, but rather spiritual. His weapons were not sword and shield, but if you see verse 9, were righteousness and humility. His defense, as I mentioned just a second ago, it was not against a worldly army. Recall with me the words of his mouth. Do you remember? I, I quote them often. When he could have called a legion of angels down to do a destructive work against 
the people that were causing him harm. But that was not the work that he was about. It wasn't against the worldly army of those not believing or those seeking to do him harm. No, it was a defense. His defense required a sacrifice of the highest order, a sacrifice of himself. The defense that I'm talking about, and I know y'all know this, we call it the good news because it brings peace wherever it goes. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, speaking peace to the nations. That's verse 10. It gives freedom to those that are, about, that are bound. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. It richly blesses. Verse 12, if we return to our stronghold, prisoners of hope, what's going to happen? Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And the defense itself, the salvation itself, it equips those being defended to do the work of the kingdom moving forward. You see that he now bends Judah like a bow made Ephraim its arrow, stirring up the sons of Zion to do spiritual battle against the sons of Greece, that is those not believing, who we might call Gentiles, of which we are. We are Gentiles. You see how the spiritual battle went. Jesus won. He won. And he defended his people, of which we were even then. God is the all-powerful king of creation. And he is not far removed, but close enough to die for you. Which brings comfort to us, his people. It's why we call the good news, the good news. We see that reality bearing itself out in these verses, 9 through 13. But thirdly, there is more. God's all-powerful kingliness is revealed in the conquering of all his enemies. Verses 14 through 17. Now, it is the 4th of July. I've made mention of it a couple times. Independence Day. It's when we remember and celebrate the birth of our nation and the deep principles that we have, uh, uh, I hope, continued to embody of, of freedom and liberty and justice for all. These things are very beautiful realities. But it came at a cost, right? Here are some stats. I had to look these up. I didn't know these. Around 6,800 Americans died in action in the Revolutionary War. Another 6,100 were wounded. And depending on your source, I found varying numbers for this. Another 17,000 died uh, from sickness. That being primarily in uh, a prisoner of war camps uh, that were not a sanitary. Over the course of American history following that, well over a million Mer American lives have been laid down and laid low for the cause. And this is not to mention uh, the astronomical count of those who have been wounded in the line of duty. And here is what God is saying to his people in verses 14 through 17. And hear it well. I will go to battle for you. There is a war on. And I will go to battle for you. Your sons and your daughters, they are safe. I will be their shield. 
and I will be their stay. There is a war. You do not have to fight. I will win it for you. I will bring all my sons and daughters home. For those of you who have gone through, uh, or, or maybe your family, or military families, uh, you know, you know with a depth the reality of the beauty of what we see here, of a God who Moses would sing after the Exodus, is a man of war who went to battle for them because they could not fight the battle on their own. That's what Moses sang as he walked across dry land. Miriam clanged the cymbals, uh, his sister, and sang it too. That God went before them. And God continues to do such things. It's incredible. In our text, we see that God goes to battle before his people. Verse 14, the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord, God, will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. God protects his people. Verse 15, <laughs> quite explicitly, the Lord of hosts will protect them. God saves his people. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord, their God, will save them. And out of his abundant goodness, God blesses his people. Verse 17, I know that we don't really think a lot about young grain and new wine, but young grain and new wine implies that the wartime is over, that peace has begun, that our crops aren't getting burned down, and that we are able to have a sustaining and growing place to survive. It's a big deal and a huge blessing. That's, it's a physical illustration of an immense spiritual reality that the people then would have resonated with, and we still should, as the people of God. God is the all-powerful king of creation who conquers his enemies, which comforts us, his people, when we realize that the burden of spiritual battle is not our own that we can lay down our heavy burdens before our king and watch him work on our behalf. And that's exactly what the gospel is. Don't you hear the words, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem on a mission. Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies, not just to say, ha ha, I did it. Jesus went on mission as an obedient son, but as a willing man to die a death that would take you and my places. He paid for the sin. He gives us his righteousness. And with that great exchange, we are found to be at peace with God. And when we are at peace with God, we recognize the reality that has been playing out the whole time. That God is all-powerful king. And that as all-powerful king, he has been moving all creation forward. That he might bring his children home. That God is all-powerful and that even as we sang and as we confessed, Psalm 100, that he is good and his steadfast love endureth forever. 
It's from this very gospel, from the comfort that you have been afforded, that you can enter into the act of comforting. At its core, stick with me and let me come back. Biblical evangelism holds a deep desire to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says a tongue twister. He is thankful to his God that we can comfort with the comfort with which we have been comforted. And he's thinking, what are you even saying? And uh, at baseline, what we usually do uh, right now in the church is that uh, perhaps uh, if we have experienced a loss or if we have had a trying time, or if we have grown somehow through some trial or another, that, that we can comfort someone who's going through the same thing with empathy. That's what, we, that's what we usually associate with it. But the reality is deeper. The evangelism word is a bad word nowadays, not only outside in the world, but inside in the church. It is not, it is not necessarily terrible, but evangelism scares the majority of us, right? To talk about God with someone who doesn't believe. But what if you thought about it this way? That you are an ambassador of Christ. That's what Paul says elsewhere. That you are to extend peace to others that are around you. And maybe another way to say that is that you are to comfort those who are uncomfortable. Don't you know those that are around you? Aren't you uncomfortable? Doesn't God comfort you? We have been called to extend a hand of comfort to the people that are around us, that need us, both in the church and outside of the church. That is what evangelism is, to bear witness to a God of comfort who extends a hand of salvation and answers the very deepest problem of our very souls, which is where we will spend eternity. To extend a hand of comfort. I was mentioning that we had the opportunity to do that freely. But we don't. Don't kid yourself. I won't kid myself either. We don't. This denomination doesn't. It's rare that any denomination in America does it right now. We have taken a very good gift uh, and we have warped it. It's like the internet. Majority of internet searches now, pornography. We've taken a very good thing broken it. The freedom that we have is the same way. What have we done with it? We've gone to air shows and cut watermelon instead of come and worship God. And even then, at our barbecues, we dare not mention the name of Jesus. And yet, God keep he keeps extending his hand of salvation and his promises. Why? Because of the blood of my covenant with you. Not your covenant with God. Of, of his covenant with his people that he has cut. He put the bow up and aimed it at himself, the rainbow. He walked through those split animals with Abraham saying that you do that to me if I don't fulfill my promise. That's what God said to us. And he fulfilled it in Jesus Christ that we might come home. And so there is a call on us now 
Yes, be convicted. I'm convicted. But be comforted in a God who continues to sustain and comfort and bless with these immense freedoms of soul and now of exercise in our nation. And so what we choose to do now with that reality at the forefront of our mind and our hearts, well, that's on us. But it always has been. And I pray that God stirs us to keep moving as we have been because we have been sharing the gospel more, not only as a church here at Centennial, but also as a denomination, not only as a denomination, but as American Christianity moves forward here. We see it, a reckoning as it costs a little bit more to say that you believe in Jesus in this country. There's been a reckoning and a purifying and it is good. Because God is all-powerful King, and He is ruling, and He is defending, and He indeed is conquering all His and our foes. Speaking of Jesus one more time and His fulfillment in Zechariah 9, let me conclude uh, with this. It's a poem that's written from a pastor. It's on Jesus. In humility did Jesus come to save the weak and the weary and the dumb. Those dragging feet on bouncing donkey can turn believing wretches comely. The king came humble like a pauper, but humble king is still king proper. So praise him now or praise him then. In power, the king doth come at the end. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the freedom we have to exercise our belief and faith and practice in this beautiful country of which you have allowed us to be a part. Lord, may we never neglect such things. May we heed your word and move forward in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.